Hey guys, you're listening to episode 13 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with John Cortinez, the Director of Generosity at the McClellan Foundation. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. We're privileged to have John Cortinez on with us today. He has a very interesting story to share about how the idea of a finish line has impacted his life. He's the co-author of the books God and Money, as well as True Riches, What Jesus Really Said About Money and Your Heart. He's the current Director of Generosity at the McClellan Foundation and is past COO of Generous Giving, a nonprofit dedicated to opening up the conversation about generosity. We're excited to be able to dig into his thoughts on the show today. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys that everything we do here on the Finish Line team is 100% free and always will be. If you're getting a lot out of this podcast and want to help us get the message to others, the best thing you can do for us right now is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get started. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. You have such an amazing personal story, but on top of that, you really become one of the leaders in the area of financial finish lines, and we're really excited to get to hear some of your thoughts today. Why don't you kick us off and just tell us a little bit about your story and your background? Sure thing. It's great to be with you guys. I I appreciate the opportunity. I'm married to my wife, Megan, and we have five children currently, three biological and two foster babies. Uh, So it's a huge blessing. We live in Orlando, Florida. We have been married for 10 years now. And a little bit of our story and our journey, Uh, our faith journey intersects our financial journey as it does for for all of us eventually, although I didn't quite realize that for a long time. I grew up in North Dallas in a great Christian home, uh, awesome parents. I was a huge saver, so I was mowing lawns all through high school. I had about $10,000 in the bank when I finished high school and then went to Texas A&M to study chemical engineering. And then I actually spent one year in Saudi Arabia doing a graduate degree in earth science. Through internships and scholarships and investing all through those years, I finished my education with about $100,000 saved up in the bank. Married Megan right after grad school, and she had finished undergrad, and we're both really frugal people. We moved to Louisiana, where I had a job in oil and gas, uh, making six figures right out of school, and that was a huge financial blessing. And I would say the way we thought about money is that there's a kind of a good Christian way to approach finances, right? If you want a gold star, you should give 10% of your income away. That's the tithe, and you're doing a good job if you do that. And, uh, and you should save a lot. Avoid debt. Save like crazy. That's kind of how, you know, that's what Christians are supposed to do with money. That's what we were doing. So we thought we were absolutely, you know, just rock stars financially. And it was true that we were having a lot of success in building net worth and even giving, giving faithfully, you could say. I really got into financial independence. There's actually this whole movement out there called financial independence, retire early or fire. I think before it even had that nickname, I was was into that. And my spreadsheets told me I could retire by age 40, especially if I could get overseas as an engineer and make a lot more money as an expat. And so I ended up going off to Harvard Business School to pursue an MBA. And getting that degree would give me a fast track opportunity to go overseas with the oil company where I was working. And so that was my plan and everything was on track. Uh, I did get the job with the oil company from business school. 
And um, everything really changed for me in the second year of my MBA program when a classmate and I took a class at Harvard Divinity School called God and Money. We, we cross-registered over into this class. He found it somehow online and he said, man, these are like our two favorite things, right? We love God. We love money. Let's take this class. It'll be interesting. So over the course of that semester, this is our next to last semester of business school. We looked at everything the Christian scriptures have to say about money and, and also the theological tradition of the last 2000 years. There have been amazing thinkers in the Christian faith who have, who have written and thought deeply about this topic. And so that experience was, I would say, life-changing for me uh, and revealed a lot of things that we can get into in the course of this conversation. But long story short, from there, my, my friend Greg and I wrote a term paper. That term paper became a self-published book. And then that self-published book ended up becoming the book God and Money that's been out for four or five years now uh, with the publisher. So it's been an amazing ride, and the journey has continued for the last six years since that happened. But we really entered into the world of finish lines through the course of that study and asking, what is a faithful Christian response in the 21st century for a business person who's doing well? How do, how do we think about money? You know, there's no scripture that says thou shalt have a finish line, but that is the conclusion we came to after a pretty extensive study of God's word. Yeah, you guys have certainly had a, quite an amazing journey and such a strong testimony when it comes to handling finances wisely. I want to get into God and money and some of the framework that you guys laid out for financial finish lines in the book. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you, I know you and Greg went through quite an extensive research process as you started to develop this term paper that later became the book. And I'm curious, at what point in that process that you actually came to the idea of a financial finish line at all? Was that pretty early on in the process? Or was that after kind of building a lot of pieces on top of each other that you came to that idea of a finish line? Sure. You know, there, there were a couple things maybe happening at the same time. One was an inward transformation of the heart for me and, and for my friend Greg as well. I was really challenged by Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. And that's a story about the guy who has barns and he wants to build bigger barns, right? And, and actually, one thing I did as an exercise was, okay, what would it look like to take this parable and put it in 21st century language instead of uh, agricultural language from the Middle East a long time ago? I don't have it in front of me, but I can, I'll, I'll paraphrase that paraphrase that we put into the, the book, actually. But it's like, you know, a manager had stock options and they went really well. The company did well. And, and he said, what shall I do? I have enough to retire. My mortgage is paid off. I already max out my 401k. And he said, I'll do this. I'll open an investment account and become financially independent. I will retire early. I will play golf. I will take some great vacations. And God said to him, just like in the scripture, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And so that portfolio you built up, what use will it be then? Going through that intellectual and spiritual exercise of saying, what does this scripture mean to me in today's world was very, very humbling, very, very challenging and made me realize just expanding my lifestyle and expanding my net worth. That was kind of the scorecard I had in my head. And God, I think was saying, you need to throw that scorecard away. It's the wrong one. So that, that was what kind of prepared the soil of my heart. And then as far as finish lines, it's actually something that we observed we really realized, okay, we're not going to be able to figure out exactly how to do this in terms of managing finances in a biblical God-honoring way 
from the ground up, we should probably talk to people who have done it really well, who are a few decades ahead in the journey. So we interviewed a lot of people and we heard a lot of different things, a lot of great wisdom, but we heard from several people about finish lines and and it looked very differently for different people's situations, but it was very compelling to hear people talk about, you know, oh yeah, I've got this business and it's grown and it's very successful, but that's not even in my mind part of what I think about. If I ever sell the business, I'll give it all away. I've got this level of wealth or this certain kind of income established, and it's the lifestyle that I think honors God, and I don't want any more than that. And so that was really, really powerful for us. And we said, well, that that seems like it works. I think we'll try it too. Yeah, I can definitely relate to your story a little bit and some of your financial goals. The idea of retiring earlier than expected, going on some nice vacations, it's like the American dream. But I can also relate that as I dove into scripture, it seems to change the way that you think about money when you start to see how Jesus talks about money. I was hoping you could take a few minutes and touch on some of the main points from God and money. Sure. I would say there are two huge messages that permeate that book that really reflect the journey God had us on. Number one is that I had always, I think this is true for many people, and it was very true for me. Giving was something that was a duty or an obligation for me growing up. And it was kind of like brushing your teeth, right? You kind of understand why it's important. You don't want to lose your teeth in 20 years. And so you brush them and you don't really like it, but you know, it's good for you. And so you do it. And and that's really what I saw in giving. And it was like, if I give less, I can probably retire earlier. And so I, I always had this tension in my heart over that. And the paradigm shift through interviewing really generous Christians and through studying God's word is that generosity is actually a a mechanism for getting closer to God. And it brings joy and it brings freedom and it opens up a whole new avenue toward purpose in life. And so that was amazing to realize that, again, generosity can be a source of joy and meaning rather than something that I have to do. And so that's a huge message of the book. And then the other one is really the finish line piece. And, and we framed that as we had been asking the wrong question. We had come into a study of, of God and money to ask, how much do we really need to give? Um, is it a percentage or, or an amount? What does that look like? And, and God flipped our perspective. And our question now is, how much do we really need to keep? So everything we have, we receive as a gift from God. He's given it to us. Some of it is for us to keep, I mean, legitimately and, and in a God-honoring way to enjoy and be be blessed by our Father in heaven. But he's also got a mission in the world that he calls us to. So once we've kept a reasonable amount, uh, whatever's left, and that could end up being a lot if we're blessed financially, as uh, for his kingdom. So those, I'd say those are the two main messages contained in the book. You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the idea of finish lines. And when we talk about finish lines, we're usually talking about, I think, what you and Greg call a spending finish line. But in your book, you guys really break the idea of a financial finish line into several different kinds of finish lines. And for those who haven't read God and Money, I was wondering if you could break down what some of those other finish lines are and the process that you guys use to create those finish lines. Sure thing. We did start with the spending finish line, which is aligned with everything you guys talk about here. And we kind of took an approach of looking at modern sociological studies, and then even some ancient writings about, you know, what's a 
lifestyle that is, um, you know, a simple abundance, a lifestyle where you can fully, you could almost use the secular language of self-actualize, achieve your human potential, so to speak, um, without just venturing into luxury for its own sake. And, and you also see that idea biblically, you know, we read in Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches. And so it's this idea of, okay, what's a, a, a simple, abundant, reasonable lifestyle? Uh, and we started with that and we can, we can talk about those numbers or things from there. But really that spending finish line drove us to then recognize there's also a net worth finish line. Because if uh, let's just say that I'm going to spend no more than $100,000 per year, which is kind of our, our straw man finish line that we use in the book, you know, you can do the math on what's a portfolio where you can generate $100,000 income. And it ends up being that at a three or $4 million net worth, there's not a need for more wealth. It's not doing anything uh, in terms of financial independence. It's just extra. That's really how a spending finish line leads us to a net worth finish line. And, and there's all sorts of internal dimensions too. So it answers the question of what size house can I buy? Well, uh, I know that I'm not going to be spending more than X per year, so I can then figure it out. And just because I have the money to buy something bigger doesn't mean that I will if I've chosen to live within this kind of a framework. So, John, for someone who is interested in finish lines and can see how that might benefit their life, how would they actually go about selecting the actual number, the the actual finish line itself? Well, there's no doubt that everybody's situation is different and unique. And uh, that's why, again, I I think there is a finish line in Scripture. It's in 3 Thessalonians. So we, we can all look it up. No, I'm just kidding. There is no such book, uh, obviously. Everybody's situation is unique. There's various factors like what geography do I live in? How expensive is housing? What size family am I? Scripture gives us principles to walk with. Luxury and self-indulgence and pride are not reasons to spend money, but godly provision for a family, responsible thoughts about the future. All of this, these are well within the realm of biblical personal finances. And so I would say it's a matter of surrendering to Jesus Christ and listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit, because he is the one who leads us in this adventure of life and saying, Lord, what do you have for me and my family? So I'd say it starts there. I think the way you guys have approached it by asking, you know, given family size, you know, check out the median because we live in, you know, the richest nation in the history of the world. We're going through a pandemic, which makes it interesting. But for context, we're still the richest people that have ever walked planet Earth. And so the median in that society, that's a pretty rich life. And so, hey, start there and then say, you know, maybe we've adopted three special needs children from overseas. Well, that may cost a lot more money. Or maybe it's uh, we're dual income, no children, and we we don't really need that much at all. Just a little travel budget for fun, and and that's it. So I would say it's extremely unique. It's extremely personal. And rather than looking for a formula, I would listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and check out y'all's calculator. Yeah, that's so true. It's a very spirit-led process, and everybody's going to be different, and, and it really does require a lot of intentionality and prayer. And for anyone who's looking for that calculator that John mentioned, you can find it on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash calculator. So John, I know you and Greg have not only been living with finish lines yourselves for quite some time, but have also both become pretty heavily involved in kind of the greater generosity movement as a whole. I've done a lot of speaking. You've now authored multiple books. And I know you were working for Generous Giving for a while and are now with the McClellan Foundation. 
So I'm curious, just from your perspective, what have you seen among the Christian community in terms of how prevalent the idea of a finish line is? Is that a pretty new idea among Christians, or is there a large and growing number of Christians who have some sort of finish line in place? Do you have any kind of idea for what that might look like? I'd say it's a growing community. There's no question about that. You know, if, if listeners are familiar with generous giving, there's there's a overnight retreat called a journey of generosity, and thousands of people have gone through that retreat. It's a very non-prescriptive experience. There's no uh, rules or guidelines about this is what you should do. Again, it's very much in the spirit of listen for the spirit of God to speak into your life, engage with scripture, watch stories. But a couple of the stories that get shown in those environments are are of people who have set these kinds of finish lines. And and I've sat in 20 or 30 of these overnight retreats and, and seen people say, you know, I've never thought about that before, but I think I'm going to do it. And and we've even done had these kinds of uh, experiences at, at grad school campuses at places like Harvard and Stanford and Chicago, just first rate schools where where people are about to go make significant incomes as they graduate. And I've seen lots of people make that decision and say, you know, I'm I'm sitting here, I live in a dorm room and I don't have any money. In fact, I have student loans, but I'm about to go make a ton of money. So why not anchor my lifestyle at kind of more of a middle of the road level? And and as God continues to bring income, I can give more and more. I mean, is it normal? Of course not but it's an increasingly large minority. And and I think that's a great thing. Another concept that really caught my attention as I read through was the Board of Directors for Life. You guys talk about this group that serves as an accountability system around the financial finish lines that you've set and provides a community around this concept. And I think that's really neat and really helpful. Could you just talk a little bit more about the Board of Directors for Life? Sure thing. Yeah, this is a group. It's a huge gift from God. And and we just praise him for what he's done and allowing us to have these kinds of friendships. But uh, it stems back in our time in business school. There were these study groups that you were supposed to do before the first class. And, and our business school used the case method. And so you study these cases, and then you have to be prepared to speak about what the company should do, what the CEO should do on the case you read. And, and yeah, a group of guys started talking and saying, you know, we should form a study group together that that could be all believers. And we could kind of maybe do a little bit of actual case preparation for our classes, but also engage the word of God and say, how are we doing as husbands and fathers? And so it started like that. And we were having breakfast together every day for a semester. And at one point, somebody said, guys, you know, companies have a board of directors. I think people should have a board of directors for their life. A board is not there for daily operations, right? You're not like, what should I have for lunch? You're not like, uh, you know, what do I do this month? It's a little complicated. It's more like the overarching theme of our life. How are we honoring God? How's marriage and family? What are we doing with our finances? Just those really high level strategic kind of questions. And so we said, let's make this group into that. And so the experiment continues. I guess we're about six years in. Uh, We have a monthly phone call. Again, there's, there's seven guys and representing seven families and I'd say usually we have four or five on the call uh, and it rotates, you know, different people miss for different reasons, but everybody's committed to the group. We have shared our finances with each other. Here's what it looks like. Here's what I'm earning right now. Here's where net worth and debts are. And most importantly, here's what God is saying to me as I manage this money and where God is leading us. And, and would you guys speak into it? You know, this is not a comparison game. This is not a look what I have or I don't have. This is a, hey, I want to honor God. And I want to put this out in front of brothers in Christ and uh, really engage together. 
So it's been an amazing experience. As you would imagine, there have been huge challenges that various members of the group have faced at different times. And so just being there to pray through those and engage with one another has been a huge gift. Yeah, that idea of financial transparency is certainly not commonplace today, but I think there's so much value in, in what you guys have set up and what that has meant for your life. You know, you wrote God and Money with Greg a number of years ago and have experienced a lot of life since then. And I'm kind of curious if there are any aspects of the structure that you laid out and the finish lines that you laid out at that point that you think differently about now. Yeah, sure. I would say there's nothing in the frameworks of that book that I feel differently about now. Uh, I do think there's one thing that this journey with the Lord and and working professionally in the generosity space has highlighted or accentuated in in a new way. And and that is that there's a huge spiritual formation element in our financial journey. And as we all go through life and, and handle money and how we handle money will absolutely shape our heart. Uh, I think that is consistent with with what we put in God and money, but I don't think we quite grasped the depth of that reality. For example, when we give, it shapes our heart. And, you know, people might say, I've never felt a passion or a calling to give to the poor. And it's like, well, God has a heart for the poor. And so rather than saying, you know, what do I want to give money to? And I'm going to do that, an art museum or something. Say, what does God's word direct me to? And then in the process of giving to that, to actually cry out to God and say, God, I don't have your heart, but I believe you can shape mine and make me more like yours. And then giving in faith in that way, he begins to change us. So I can say that it took three or four years of giving to different poverty alleviation ministries and praying that prayer for God to begin to shape my heart. And by his grace, now I actually have a good deal of passion around poverty issues, and especially where the gospel can be brought to bear in a meaningful way while meeting material needs. But I didn't have that five years ago. So as we handle money, God is shaping us. Yeah, I love the way you put that and the way that you talked about this discovery process of figuring out what God's calling is for your life. And that's something that Steph and I are kind of going through right now. And we realized that it is a long, gradual process, that discovery process, but it really only started when we took a first step. God started to reveal what His calling is in our lives in response to us taking some action. And, and that has been such a blessing to to learn that. But uh, I did want to talk about one other concept that you mentioned actually early in your book. And you said, whereas you kind of tended to be a saver throughout life and Greg tended to be more of a spender, both of you discovered there is a, a third option. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about what that third option is. Sure thing. Yeah, this really started with the idea that if you have money, You can picture like a $100 bill in your hand, right? There are really three things you can do with that money. You can spend it, you can save it for the future, or you can give it away, and which is serving others. And as we were doing this study that eventually became the book, we, we realized, okay, I'm a saver. And so you can save money and you can be a saver. Like that can be your highest ambition and focus with money. Greg was a spender. And so if he has that $100, he's thinking, where are we going to dinner? Right. And so that's, you can be a spender. You can spend money and that can be your mental orientation toward money, but you can also give money away. So what if that were like the thing that you gravitated toward? Like, what if that was your mental focus around money? It doesn't mean you don't save money or 
spend money. It just means your highest excitement and your mindset around money. We call it a money mindset in the book could be a servant, uh, someone who receives money as a gift from God and just gets so excited to share it with others. It was almost like a a mythical idea, you know, when we first thought of that, like, yeah, but surely nobody's actually like that. And then as we started interviewing really generous believers, we discovered, oh my goodness, that's real. And nobody starts there. But again, by God's grace and surrender and submission to his work in our lives, he can make us into servants with our money so that we go, yeah, I save money. Yeah, I spend money. And that's great and beautiful. And, and I love it. But let me tell you about what I got to give to last year, this story of how God moved and I got to bless somebody. And, uh, and that's a really cool thing. Yeah. You know, it's so true that God really shapes our heart through our giving. Something that I've heard a number of times is the idea that God loves a cheerful giver. And so if I don't feel cheerful about giving, then I should probably wait until my attitude towards giving changes before I start to give. And from everything that you're saying, and and from my own experience as well, I think what's probably more accurate is that we first take that step of giving, even if our hearts aren't in the right place to do that. And it's through that giving and through that action that God actually makes us into cheerful givers, and that we actually start to experience the fruit from that action. So I'm curious, as you and Greg have spoken and gathered feedback about your book and just have had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about the idea of finish lines. What are some of the most common objections or questions that you get about the idea of a finish line? And how do you typically respond to those? Yeah, it's, I would say that 90% plus of, of what we hear is enthusiasm. And, and maybe that's just because the people who want to come say hello are the ones who really liked it. I'll, there's memories I'll never forget. Like I, I got to preach at a church one time and share this story. And this woman came up just with tears running down her face. And she said, you, you've described my life and you've you've kind of given a biblical answer to something I've never been able to resolve. And that's me. I'm the rich fool, just like you were. And, and I want to change that. And God's moving. And so just to hear those kind of responses, and go, man, this is so good. We need to be talking about this in our churches. We need to be engaging. And again, uh, everything you guys articulate is is so biblically rooted. It, it's not condemnation. It's not guilt to say, you know, look how you're doing it so wrong. It, it's actually to just say, this is an invitation to the abundant life of the gospel. And that's such a good thing. I'll say the one area that does create some tension for people, our families included, is what do we do with education? So, you know, okay, I, I can live in a modest, reasonable, nice home. I can drive normal cars. I can do whatever else. But then then you, especially if you have a large family, and if you become uncomfortable with what public school is looking like, then that leaves you in a conundrum. You know, do, do I homeschool? And is there a, a spouse who can make that work and is excited about doing that or not? And then what does private school look like? So that that is the one thing that I have seen blow up more finish lines than anything else or, or just make them a lot larger or whatever the case may be. And so it requires a huge commitment. And again, I'm not anti-private Christian education, I, but I do think it's worthy of great consideration because of the degree of expense involved. I see many families that I love stretching to afford a school like that. And I know it's impacting their ability to give, even their ability to save for the future responsibly, because they view it almost as this ultimate thing that their children have to have. 
And, and so that's, that's a struggle, um, both in terms of financial responsibility and in terms of um, abiding by an idea of a, a finish line or being able to give generously. Yeah, thanks for that answer. I can see how that is a really important thing to navigate for anyone who has kids and lives with a finish line. I wanted to ask you a question that frequently comes up in finish line sprints. And that question is, how much house is too much? And I really love the way that you talk in God and Money about honoring God with our possessions, not just our dollars. And it's really easy to focus on the dollars aspect, our income, our net worth. But when it really comes down to it, we can look at everything we own and ask, does owning this, does having this possession actually honor God? Can you share your thoughts on that concept? Yeah, it's such a great question and a crucial one. And and I think we want to steer clear of veering off in either ditch on the side of this road. And, and on the one side, there's if a Christian has anything nice, they need to feel guilt and shame and apologize for it. And and I'm sitting and doing this interview with you guys in a nicely appointed home where me and my wife raise our family. It's It's a nice place. I wouldn't say anything otherwise. But the other ditch that we've got to avoid is is kind of the prosperity gospel. Uh, okay, I'm a child of the king, and wouldn't my father want to bless me? And and so I'm just going to pursue really, really nice things the best I can possibly get. And my wife and I, in our own example, feel so conscious of this is a, a well-appointed, lovely home, and, and it's also the most we'll ever get. You know, as our finances continue to improve, we're kind of at that finish line in housing. A great example of this recently there was someone who owns a company who could buy any house they wanted to buy. And they were looking at a couple different ones at, at a similar price point, probably a little beyond what most listeners would be able to consider. But as they were getting counsel from a, a very wise, trusted friend, Christian friend and mentor, um, they said, you know, I would consider the fact that how will a person from your church small group feel driving up to your home if you're hosting? Well, they feel like, oh my goodness, this is a rich people house. Uh, I got to tell my kids not to touch anything because they might break something that costs $20,000. You know, just, is it going to feel like that or not? And and they actually ended up getting a home that that had a couple of acres and was next to a lake and beautiful. And again, beyond what I could afford, but it doesn't feel when you walk up to it, like you're intimidated or like this is this must be a very, very rich person's home. It actually just feels like a fun place where your kids could go run around. And in fact, they love to host and do that kind of thing. So again, a nuanced example, but I think there's no clear cut answer on this. We can embrace the principles of simplicity relative to what we've been given and enjoy what God provides. I just want to go back for a second to what you were saying about education and how that can be a major barrier for people. And I think you have a lot of insight there. I think one of the reasons that probably is, is because, you know, when we choose a financial finish line and are in some way making a concrete decision or a sacrifice on our behalf, it's one level to sacrifice something for ourselves, but it feels like a whole nother layer when we are making those sacrifices on behalf of our kids. And I know that you have a lot of kids and I have four of my own. And so, you know, that's an important thing to wrestle with. But I think that will always be something that challenges people as they try to sort through what a finish line looks like in their own life when they have kids. On a kind of related note, I know that when you guys first wrote the book, you didn't have quite as many kids as you do now. And now you have 
three biological kids and two foster children with you as well. So I'm kind of curious, over the years, as your family has grown, how has your finish line changed or not changed in reaction to that? And how do you approach that change in family size? Yeah, so our spending has definitely come up as our family size has increased. I don't mind sharing numbers because they're they're in our second book. And so it's already kind of out there. Our family, we don't earn enough currently to spend at our finish line. So we set our finish line at what we wanted the guardrail to be, but that was based on having enough income to be able to give and save and spend responsibly to that level. So we set a finish line of $100,000 in spending, and that was based on a family of four in 2015. And so we're a family of seven in 2021. And so we haven't tried to calculate an exact number, but it's probably 110, 120, something like that. Currently, I'm in a nonprofit leadership role. I serve on a board of directors and and I'm you know, the author and speaker stuff. So our, our family income is around 200,000. If we lived like the typical American family, we could probably spend 140 without dipping into savings in the course of a year. But because of the way we prioritize giving and, and also saving for the future, um, we're not comfortable spending more than 80 or 90, which is about what we spend right now. So spend about 80 or 90,000, which is maybe 40, 45% of our income. And then give and save and pay taxes with the rest. So if our income were to go higher, we might expand that spending a little bit, but but not too much further and, and certainly not beyond the finish line that we've set. So John, because of some of the roles that you've held and your participation in the community, I was hoping you could share some of your perspective on what's going on in the greater generosity community. Sure thing. You know, one one thing that I have unique exposure to through some of my work that might be interesting is what's happening internationally. Uh, getting to see you know, different generosity trainings and movements rolling out through church networks and discipleship networks in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, it's just absolutely incredible. So two anecdotes, there was a training that happened with a group in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and they, they sent back some feedback to the trainers and said, you know, people are so excited about the opportunity to give they're bringing their vegetables and chickens and goats and giving them to the church. And we're seeing, you know, the church is being so blessed by this, which is just incredible, right? It's not necessarily even a cash economy, but but I've got a chicken to give or a goat to give. And, and another one, just this one moved me to tears when I first heard this, but a group of refugees who are Christian got to go to a generosity training and assumed they were going to get something, right? I mean, they're very poor. Generosity training, oh, maybe somebody will give us something. And they said, we got convicted and realized we are God's children. God is a giver. We we can be givers like God is a giver. And and they, they started saying, well, what do we even have? We don't have any money. And, and they realized we have more than one pair of clothes. And, and they said, well, we got to find somebody poorer than us to give to. And, and long story short, the refugees gave their extra clothes to prisoners who had to work in the field and very quickly their clothes would wear out. And um, I heard that story and thought, oh my goodness. And the dignity and excitement among people doing that, right? And so is it sacrificial if you're a refugee to give you know one of your only pairs of clothes to a prisoner? Absolutely. But they are living out the character of God and experiencing the joy that comes with that. So it's humbling to then think that here I sit with my spreadsheets and 401ks and everything else doing a similar thing in the world I inhabit, but but in a much less sacrificial way. 
Yeah, it's always incredible to hear stories of generosity like that and how the Spirit can just really capture people's hearts and completely change their whole worldview when it comes to money and possessions. And that's what he's doing here, and, and that's what he's doing all over the place. And I really resonate with you looking at stories like that from the comfort of our nice house where we have basically all of our needs met and just trying to grapple with that idea that, that we have so much in abundance while there are so many that don't and who are still leading lives of incredible generosity. I think that we have a lot to learn. And fortunately, we have a gracious, patient God who is walking with us as we try to grow and learn in that process. I had one final question here as we get closer to the end. In your book, you talked about how we can approach our giving and kind of laid out a little bit of a framework to think about that. You talked about it being gospel-centered, and you talked about it being effective. And then you also talked about our giving being a calling, that we each have a unique calling into what God has invited us to give towards. And at the time of the book, you shared how you didn't know exactly what your calling was at that point, and that you were actively walking through that process with God for him to kind of pull your heart in one direction or another. And I'm curious now, five or six years out, what that process has looked like for you and how you guys approach your giving at this point. Sure thing. You know, it's a given to support our local church. It always has been. And so we we do that and we try to do that generously. And and again, I just want to emphasize that as as being so important. But then additionally, you know, we we give to other things and and yeah, when we came out of grad school and around the time God and Money was coming out, uh, my wife and I, we probably gave to seven or eight different organizations. And I think this is a good approach if someone says, I want to figure out within the context of things that are clearly on the heart of God, you know, just because it's tax deductible doesn't mean that it's kingdom building. So Christian ministries doing Christian work. Let's find seven or eight that we think are great and let's give them whatever a, a modest but meaningful gift is for us, $500, $1,000. And then just kind of get their materials and learn from them and maybe go to a, a webinar. And and we did that. And within a couple of years, we had said, I think these three or four are, are really kind of aligned with what we feel called to. And we've gotten to the point today where it's really one nonprofit outside of our church that we're kind of all in with at this point. But we wouldn't have gotten to that focus if we hadn't been exploring and learning and and discerning the differences between how different ministries operate. But now we're confident uh, I've been to the field, you know, we we know the leadership. And so we're we're able to throw pretty big chunks in, in this direction and be excited about what's happening there. Well, to have narrowed down most of your giving to one extremely effective nonprofit certainly sounds intriguing. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share what that nonprofit is and about the work that they do. Yeah, I'm happy to share. That's Compassion International. I've become a huge fan. Everything they do is Christ-centered child-focused and done through the local church. And so the thing my wife and I really love is that when we give money to Compassion, we're actually giving money to some local church off in, in a rural spot in Honduras or Haiti or uh, some other country. And um, it's all flowing through the church for the benefit of children in Jesus' name. So we become big fans. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today. But thank you so much, John, for sitting down with us today and sharing some of your thoughts and your perspective. We really enjoyed it, and we hope to have you back sometime. Before we finish up, I just wanted to get to our manager minute for the day. Every week, we try to share one quick idea for something our listeners can give to right now with any money that they've set aside to give away. 
When we have guests on the show, we like to take the chance to hear one of their recommendations. So, John, do you have any good suggestions of how we or our listeners could be using any excess money that God gives us to manage? Absolutely. I'm only halfway answering it, but I, I like the idea, and I hope you'll you'll give me grace to do that. You know, I love to recommend to people to set up a giving savings account, and I actually mean for not tax deductible giving. So, you know, if if when I log into my Chase Bank, I, I've got a couple of main accounts I use, but there's also a giving account. It's nicknamed Giving, and uh, we try to always keep five hundred or a thousand dollars in there. I think it auto drafts a hundred dollars a month, and the reason we do that is my wife and I both know we have the freedom to give a gift to a person in need, to a stranger we bump into if the Holy Spirit prompts us, and the money's there. So uh, it's not like, oh, let me try to call and say, oh, this person needs something. It's like, no, there's already free permission to do it, whether it's $500 to the neighbor that just lost their job, whether it's $300 to somebody at church who's in a bad situation. Uh, Just on the spot, Holy Spirit-led generosity. You're equipped to do that if you set the money aside in advance. And that is some of the most fun giving that my wife and I get to do each year. It may not be as what we'd call strategic and internationally oriented. And we do that with the rest of our giving. But it's so much fun to just give generous gifts from from a giving savings account. Well, thanks again for joining us today, John. It's really been a pleasure hearing from you. Great to be with you guys. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you want to learn more about John's story, make sure to check out his book, God and Money. And as always, if you have questions about setting a financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll be sure to answer them on one of our future episodes. And if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 13. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next week.